Well, hello, everyone. This is Dennis Sanders, your host for Spheres of Influence. This is the podcast where we talk about religion, politics, culture, all of those important spheres of influence in our lives. This is the eighth episode, and um, I had kind of said we were going to be talking about a few um, things that took place in the sphere of religion. One is the um, kind of my own thing about uh, being a pastor during the pandemic, and then about the ups and downs of the um, Protestant mainline church. But I think in light of recent events that took place of mass shootings in both uh, Atlanta and Boulder, Colorado, it seems like it's important to talk about guns again, because, of course, guns have um, entered our lexicon again. And it's there is an old episode of, of Star Trek The Next Generation where the Enterprise is caught in a time loop. And the episode actually interestingly begins with the ship in distress, and then it blows up. And then we are put back a few days earlier, and it goes through the, all the things that lead up to the ship being destroyed, and it's, it goes around and around. They're caught in this time loop. Everything keeps repeating. And it seems like with whenever we have a mass shooting, um, that tends to be the issue here. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, but before I go into that, um, I do want to say that uh, I hope that you, if you are listening to this on um, Apple Podcasts, that you will consider uh, writing a review or and um, also giving it a rating. That would be uh, helpful. It helps people find this podcast. And so um, if you have that chance, please do it. And whatever... Um, platform you're using, please consider subscribing. Um, that also makes it a lot easier for people to find, and it's a lot easier for you not have to have to always have to hunt for this podcast. So, and if you have any questions, there is an email address um, in the uh, show notes. Um, that is den d e n, as in the room in a house. And M-I-N-N, the um, short for Minnesota. That's all one word, denmin at gmail.com. And I'd like to hear from you. What do you think about certain episodes? Do you like them? Do you hate them? You know, let me know what you're thinking. And so um, that will be helpful. And also, I love to engage people in discussion. So... Just a reminder to keep it keep it civil. Um, we're not here to art to yell at each other. We're here to actually have a discussion. So, let's talk about guns. Um, guns in America, I think, has long ago stopped being a policy issue. I think if you went back to, say, the um, 1994 uh, crime bill that uh, placed uh, at least a 10-year ban on what are sometimes called assault weapons, um, those are usually the style guns like the AR-15, 
back then it was a policy issue. But we, over the last 30 years or so, have, well, everything in our society has become a culture war. And it seems like everything is about taking sides and trying to show off and signal to others what side you belong to. And the thing is, is that guns are a cultural issue. They're no longer a policy issue. No one is here wanting to try to solve this problem of gun violence. What we want to do is posture. And I think that that is as true as those who are opposed to any type of um, gun control and those who say that they want gun control. All of this is is to show off who they believe or what they believe and what side they're on. Now, before I go any further, I need to show my own cards. It's always hard to kind of describe my politics, but um, I tend to lean libertarian. I am not someone that thinks that we should have no government or, you know, going that far. But I do feel that there are certain things that people should be free to do. And so I do tend to support gun ownership and the Second Amendment. Now, that does not mean that I don't support some some restrictions on guns, because I do. I do think that there are some restrictions that are necessary, because we're not dealing with, an, an, you know, a we're dealing with weapon with things that are deadly, and there has to be some way of kind of respecting that power. And so I do support some gun control measures, for the lack of a better word. But I do think that people should be able to have guns. I'm not someone that has ever had a gun. Um, I think over the last few years, though, I've been more interested in at least doing things like firing guns. And frankly, just for the the reason is that I want to understand this issue more. Um, I don't want to be someone that is making a judgment on something that I've never experienced or doesn't even or doesn't know. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. But every time that we have one of these shootings, whether you know, whether it's you know Atlanta or Boulder, whether it's Aurora or um, Parkland, it becomes kind of this tribal thing. You know, the debate these days has become much more ideological, much more partisan. I can remember back in the 2008 campaign um, for president in the Republican primary, and I remember hearing something from um, Rudy Giuliani kind of before he went crazy. Um, And he was talking about how the difference of different places would have different ways of dealing with guns so that, you know, maybe a place like New York City, you'd have to have more restrictions, but somewhere like Idaho, probably not. And that was the way that people believed. And, you know, 
probably until very recently, Bernie Sanders, who is on the opposite side of um, Rudy Giuliani, was someone that supported gun rights. And of course, he comes from a very rural state, Vermont, so it made sense. But the funny thing is now is that that issue, this issue, has become more ideological, it has become more partisan, and more tribal. If you want to look at what was a policy, how when guns were looked at as policy, and when it wasn't a culture war issue, and when it wasn't partisan, I've already shared the kind of the crime bill of 1994, but I actually want to go farther back to the Gun Control Act of 1968. That was when guns really were a policy issue. It was passed in the wake of all of the assassinations of the 1960s. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Robert F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, you know, all of this made Washington especially think that they need to pass something. And so this law, which dealt primarily with the purchasing of guns, um, passed the House by a vote of 305 to 118. Um, it was basically equal numbers of both Democrats and Republicans voting in favor. And it passed in the Senate um, 70 to 17. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, again, with almost equal numbers from both parties supporting it. That was when actually people thought that there was an issue, there was a problem, and they wanted to deal with it. We're always kind of talking about the fact that, and especially from the gun control side, that nothing ever changes. Washington never does anything. But the fact is, there is no way that we could do what we did back in 1968. Because this is now a culture issue. And we view each other as crazy and scary. There is one side that thinks that it's just a bunch of crazed loons that want to go off and shoot their guns and don't care. Or there are those who are fearful that somehow there are going to be people coming and taking their guns. So we no longer look at this as a as a problem to be solved. Back after the Parkland shootings in 2018, um, David French, who is now with the Dispatch, but at that time with, with National Review, he was really worried about the gun control debate and how it was, he thought it was tearing the fabric of American society. And that the problem right now is that People don't have empathy for the other side at all. Now, it's also interesting because this is still a, an issue for him or a concern. And um, in his most recent book, Divided We Fall, he talks really about the how America is so divided and so divided in a way that it it's, he fears could break us apart. And so he presents two scenarios of how that could happen. And one scenario involves California, 
and a and gun control. And that issue ended up breaking apart the United States. So he is still concerned about this issue. But I want to go back to uh, 2018. And so he was talking about that. He talks about this in his book, but he talks about what happened in the aftermath of Parkland. And CNN did a town hall in Florida and he recounts that event that there was this town hall and there was this furious crowd. I mean, they were angry and you definitely knew what side of the, the debate they were on. Um, and Marco Rubio, the Senate, one of the senators from Florida was there. He stood in defense of the second amendment, but he got, um, mocked. He was called a murderer. He was compared to a mass killer. Um, and whenever there was talk about banning se- uh, single semi-automatic um, rifles, then there were wild cheers. Um, as French notes, it was kind of a slanderous event because what people were watching came away from that is, especially if you were someone that believed in gun rights, is that the people here weren't angry just at the event. Um, They were actually, they hated people who owned guns. Um, So it basically was such an event that there was no coming together at all. And, you know, he shares this on both sides. I won't go into all of this. But he talks really about the fact that, again, because this is a culture issue, how often it really colors how we look at each other. And so this is what David French has to say. I'm sharing this from this article he wrote in 2018. Some progressives believe that firearms are little more than an atavistic enthusiasm for rural primitives and right-wing militia nuts, a hobby that must be tolerated, if only barely, because of some vestigial 18th century political compromise. They simply do not grasp, or care to grasp, how gun culture is truly lived in red America. This loathing isn't one-sided. It is simply false to believe that the haters are clustered on the left side of the spectrum and the right is plainly seeking greater understanding. Increasingly, conservatives don't just hate their liberal counterparts. They despise the perceived culture of blue America. They're repulsed by the notion that personal security should depend almost completely on the government. The sense of dependence is at odd with their view of a free citizenry, and to put it bluntly, they perceive their progressive peers as soft and unmanly. This divide won't go away, and it has the potential to break us as a nation. In days past, people seem to understand that, kind of like I I said it was a few years ago when uh, Rudolph Giuliani was talking about it, that people lived in different circumstances. And those circumstances allowed for cases where they might need guns or places where 
they may not need so many guns. But now, things have hardened. Where there used to be this sense that, on the left, that maybe there were some use for, uses for guns, now it's just basically everything is a gun fetish. Um, I remember, again, this is going back to the Parkland uh, shootings, there was a person I know that was on Twitter, he referred to guns as a phallic symbol, and he substituted the word penis whenever the word there was normally going to be gun. So that's kind of what some people think, that it's basically a sense of, um, how shall we say it, compensating. On the other side, the right may have understood that there was a need for gun restrictions in some urban areas. They knew that. But now they think that those on the left that think that there is a need for, for restrictions are just soft on crime and they trust government too much. And on that side, the Second Amendment is sacrosanct. There is nothing that can be done. You get to have guns. There is no such thing as limiting it. Each side basically is dreaming, or at least is dreaming on this perfect utopia where the other side doesn't exist. And any attempt to build a bridge is just kind of laughed off. And that's just being on the good side, if people were really cranky, they're basically doing more than just um, laughing it off. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, was trying to build some bridges after one of the recent shootings. And he, being someone that he works for the New York Times, he tends to lean right of center He's someone that obviously has a foot in two worlds. He, he is someone that writes for a newspaper that is very much considered left of center. And, but he is also someone, kind of a man of the right as well. And so he said basically that blue America needs to listen to people in red America. And he thought that for any meaningful change to take place, for, it, for anything to happen... Red America has to be part of the solution. And so he was pleading for both sides to listen to one another, to respect each other. I want to kind of share what he is saying, he said, after a recent shooting. We really don't have policy debates anymore. We have one big tribal conflict, and policy fights are just proxy battles as each side tries to establish moral superiority. But just as the tribal mentality has been turned on, it can be turned off. Then and only then can we go back to normal politics and take reasonable measures to keep our children safe. Now, I think that makes sense. And in fact, that is something that I've always believed, that any real kind of change um, to deal with guns, you have to listen to what those people who own guns think. Because they probably do want change, too. And 
you're just not going to get anywhere if you don't have them on board. So it makes sense to me, but it did not make sense to Blue America. There was a lot of blowback. Instead of seeking to really understand those who have guns, Blue America basically thinks the guns are bad, full stop. And they came back at Brooks hard. The New York Magazine slammed him with an article that's, that was called, No, Smug Liberals Aren't the Reason We Lack Same Gun Laws. Then there was Media Matters. And they said, David Brooks needs to shut up. They didn't want to listen. They didn't care. They believed that gun owners were basically callous. They didn't really care that people were dying. They just wanted to keep their guns, even though the mass shooting kept happening. Now, it's not just... Blue America, of course, that has a problem, but Red America has a problem. If there are those who think that basically the problem is a bunch of gun nuts, then you have those on the other side who think that anything short of not just letting people do whatever they want when it comes to guns is something basically tantamount to tyranny. And so this was an essay in The Federalist um, that basically looked at any, any infringement on regulation, uh, any, any regulation of guns as an infringement of rights. And this was written by uh, writer John Daniel Davison, and this one I do want to read in full because it's a doozy. The right to bear arms stems from the right of revolution, which is asserted in the Declaration of Independence and forms the basis of America's social compact. Our republic was forged in revolution and the American people have always retained the right to overthrow their government if it becomes tyrannical. That means it doesn't mean that private militia should have tanks and missile, missile launchers, but it does mean that revolution, the right of first principles, undergirds our entire political system. That might sound academic or outlandish next to the real-life hoarder of a school shooting, but the fact remains we can't simply wave off the Second Amendment any more than we can wave off the First or the Fourth or any of them. They are constitutive elements of the American idea, without which the entire constitutional system would eventually collapse. In this, America is unlike the European nations that gun control advocates like to compare it with. Germany can restrict the right to bear arms as it easily can and does free speech. Not so in America. If we want to change that, it will involve a substantial diminishment of our constitutional rights as we have known them up to now. After last week's school shooting, some Americans are okay with that, especially those families who are grieving. But I suspect most Americans are not willing to make that trade-off. It might never be, unless they suffer the same kind of personal loss.
there is something bothersome about this. Like I said, I support the Second Amendment. But it seems that his answer basically is when there is a mass shooting. And I haven't even talked about really what is the major driver, because it's not mass shootings. It is actually shootings that we would see in, in urban areas that tend to affect African-Americans. Basically, either way, we're supposed to just throw up our hands and say, oh, well. Now, I don't think that any law is going to reduce mass shootings to zero. But we can try to make them less frequent. And it doesn't help that he is also talking a lot about the right to revolution. You know, in light of what happened on January 6th, such talk is, to me, silly, if not stupid. It's, it's just foolhardy to say that, that somehow we have a right to revolution. I don't think people do have a right to revolution. We have a right to question our government. We don't have a right to basically come in guns blazing. I wish that we could be more of a place that we're focused more on policy and that guns was not such a tribal cultural issue. But, and I wish that we had, we could do something or have the somewhat of a climate that the Gun Control Act of 1968 was passed. But, we don't have that. We don't live in that society. Where we do live is here. And it is in a world where we don't really want to find a solution. Where it seems that we are content to look at each other with anger and contempt and to not try to find a way to solve this. I don't, like I said, I don't believe that we are ever going to get to the place where there will be no mass shootings. Now that has happened in some other countries like the UK and Australia, but we are neither of those countries and we aren't going to be either of those countries. But that doesn't mean that we can't do anything. Americans have to decide What is it that we want? What kind of society do we want? And can we work together to find a solution? But of course, all of that means that we have to be willing to see each other and to see the arguments that we carry with some validity. We have to be willing for, for people who are gun owners to see those who worry about guns not as someone that's going to take, away, take them away, but as people who are concerned and concerned for their loved ones. And those who don't live in a gun culture, who see guns 
is very dangerous. You need to see those who own guns not as crazy people, but as people who are trying to live their own lives. If we could come together and understand each other and find some way to make these shootings less frequent and to find some way to stop the violence that takes place in so many inner cities, it would be wonderful. But I'm starting to believe that in our own time period, we're just not going to get there. There is too much at, we hate each other too much. And that hate really feeds, it gives us life. And until we're willing to remove that poison and to see each other as humans again, just get ready to have the same argument when the next mass shooting happens. Before I close out today's um, podcast, I also wanted to bring up another issue briefly. Um, It's been one that's kind of been stuck in my craw today. And um, it's been dealing, dealing with how Um, someone has been treated, and that is Dr. Deborah Burks. As many of you know, she was on the um, President Trump's coronavirus task force. Um, If you remember, she and uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci kind of were a tandem um, on that task force, working together on those issues. and it's been very interesting. Dr. Fauci, for many reasons, is a beloved person. And, you know, most people know, have known him in some form or another, basically for the last 40 years. He worked on um, HIV AIDS issues. Um, so he has a reputation and he's almost seen as a saint. Unfortunately, that wasn't the same way for Dr. Burks. Um, she's not as well known. And I think that's sad because I've had a chance to look at her background and it's, it's actually f- somewhat um, impressive. Um, she, is, um, she served in the Army as an active duty reserve officer. Um, from basically from 1980 to 94, and then was uh, active regular duty army from 94 to 2008. She got the rank of colonel in the army. Um, she worked at Walter Reed um, in internal medicine. She then um, worked in Anthony Fauci's lab. Um, she was the assistant chief of the Walter Reed allergy immunology service. Um, She worked on, focused on HIV AIDS research. She worked at the National Institutes of Health and um, even worked for a while on trying to find a vaccine for for HIV AIDS. Um, President 
Obama um, named her to be part of um, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. So this is a woman that has had some heft to her. Um, she's been very impressive. And probably her weakness was that she ended up serving on the coronavirus task force. And that may have, not, may have not been the wisest thing for her to do. Um, I don't think that she had any idea how far Trump was going to go in denying the science and all of that. I think she felt that she was a civil servant. She had worked in, in serving their government and her country for years. So here was a incredible crisis, and she did what she could. Um, now, everyone has been talking, especially because of the um, documentary that aired last night on CNN, and she kind of came clean in a way that she, in some ways, was not able to during her time on the task force. And a lot of people now are angry at her. Um, I think one of the harshest um, assessments I read is when Jonathan B. Last at Bulwark, um, just very unforgiving. And I remember that um, kind of almost looking to her as in ways that are just kind of making her look like she's kind of this uncaring person. And the way that it was discussed would say that she was basically performing malpractice. The funny thing is, is that, you know, Fauci, both Fauci and Burks were put in really hard positions. But Fauci had a little bit of support because he had a position at the National Institutes of Health. He has some degree of political independence. And he even acknowledges that as much. Dr. Burks was on the task force. Her office was in the White House. She didn't have that luxury. She was basically caught. And there have been some that have said that, you know, she should have pushed back more on, on the lies. And that's, there's some truth to that. But, you know, some people say if she got she came forward, was that really going to necessarily make a difference? It wasn't going to necessarily stop anything. Maybe it would have put her on the right side of history, but that's about it. Things would still happen. I think maybe what bothers me as much is that she, well, it's something that I think I see a lot with um, women and persons of color, especially when you're in these type of positions. And I think um, <coughs> a doctor um, who wrote an op-ed about this, Megan Ram Ramney talked about this, is that it is really hard to be in those type of um, basically 
trying to survive in in, the, in a climate like she did, especially in a climate where women weren't necessarily valued. Um, and I think in those cases where you, you do those type of compromises, you get looked at more harshly. I mean, Dr. Fauci had also had some compromises himself. He had to pull back on what he wanted to say. But he doesn't get that same harshness that she is getting. And um, I think that that just comes with the case of being either a woman or a person of color, is that you don't get the same leeway that others get. Um, I think that that's just the way it is in our our climate. You know, I've seen that in my own life, that there are just certain things that I can't do um, in the same way that someone who is white, and especially someone who's white and male, can do. And that's nothing against white males. I'm, I'm not going to go all woke here, but it's it's just that that's kind of what it is. I think what is interesting about this is some people have said that she has tried to rehabilitate herself and have kind of knocked her for it. But if you look at her history, I don't blame her. She worked hard to get to where she was. And she wants to explain at least the very least what she tried to do. And I remember that she, there were some, lots of times that she was trying to say the right things. In fact, she did and got into trouble for it. I think in some ways what we forget is that the person to blame for the amount of deaths uh, because of the coronavirus pandemic is not Dr. Deborah Gergs. It's Donald Trump. Donald Trump was the one that refused to take this seriously. He refused to do really do anything about this. And yes, he wants to get credit for Operation Warp Speed, but let's be honest, that was someone probably in the administration. It was not him. He didn't give a rat's ass whether people lived or died. He is the one that is to blame, not Dr. Bergs. She was put in a really bad spot. Now, maybe she shouldn't have been in the, on the coronavirus task force. Maybe she should have walked away. That's a judgment call, and maybe and and she probably shouldn't have. But the real person that needs to be held responsible, the person that is the one that truly I think has blood on their hands, it's Donald Trump. It's not Deborah Burks. And people who are, are blaming her, I think, are idiots. I just there are people in the administration that I think are have a lot of explaining to do, but she's not one of them. She's made mistakes. I'm not going to try to say that she's innocent. But I think like a lot of people, especially a lot of women in that administration, um, Kirsten Nielsen is the other one that I think about at times. We're trying to try to do the right thing in a really hard situation. And the the result for that is that then they get tarnished as collaborators. 
and I don't think that's right. So I guess what I want to say is um, I think Dr. Burks was not perfect, but I think she was trying to do the best in a bad situation. So uh, thank you for listening. This is episode eight. Um, if you have any questions or want to know a little bit or, or think that this was a great episode or think that this was a horrible episode, feel free to uh, send me an email. It, that um, email is in the show notes. And um, also there will be a few articles in there for you to read um, that kind of I've read that kind of help in putting this article together on both issues, um, dealing with Dr. Burks and also, um, with, um, on the gun issue. So, um, thanks for listening. Uh, I will be getting to those other two issues I've been talking about, um, probably next week. Um, so have a good week. Godspeed. See you later.